Section 8 of What is Property? This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Nelson. What is Property? An Inquiry into the Principle of Right and of Government by Pierre Joseph Proudhon. Translated by Benjamin R. Tucker. Chapter 2, Part 3 civil law as the foundation and sanction of property pothier seems to think that property like royalty exists by divine right he traces back its origin to god himself ab jove principium he begins in this way god is the absolute ruler of the universe and all that it contains domini est terra et plenitudo ejus orbis et universi qui habitant in io for the human race he has created the earth and all its creatures and has given it a control over them subordinate only to his own thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands thou hast put all things under his feet says the psalmist god accompanied this gift with these words addressed to our first parents after the creation be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth after this magnificent introduction who would refuse to believe the human race to be an immense family living in brotherly union and under the protection of a venerable father but heavens are brothers enemies are fathers unnatural and children prodigal God gave the earth to the human race. Why then have I received none? He has put all things under my feet, and I have not where to lay my head. Multiply, he tells us through his interpreter, Potier. Ah, learned Potier! That is as easy to do as to say, but you must give moss to the bird for its nest. The human race, having multiplied, men divided among themselves the earth and most of the things upon it that which fell to each from that time exclusively belonged to him that was the origin of the right of property say rather the right of possession men lived in a state of communism whether positive or negative it matters little then there was no property not even private possession the genesis and growth of possession gradually forcing people to labor for their support they agreed either formally or tacitly it makes no difference which that the laborer should be sole proprietor of the fruit of his labor that is they simply declared the fact that thereafter none could live without working it necessarily followed that to obtain equality of products there must be equality of labor, and that, to obtain equality of labor, there must be equality of facilities for labor. Whoever, without labor, got possession, by force or by strategy, of another's means of subsistence, destroyed equality, and placed himself above or outside of the law. Whoever monopolized the means of production on the ground of greater industry, also destroyed equality equality being then the expression of right whoever violated it 
was unjust. Thus, labor gives birth to private possession, the right in a thing, juice in re, but in what thing? Evidently in the product, not in the soil. So the Arabs have always understood it, and so, according to Caesar and Tacitus, the Germans formerly held. The Arabs, says Sismondi, who admit a man's property in the flocks which he has raised, do not refuse the crop to him who planted the seed, but they do not see why another, his equal, should not have a right to plant in his turn. The inequality which results from the pretended right of the first occupant seems to them to be based on no principle of justice, and when all the land falls into the hands of a certain number of inhabitants, there results a monopoly in their favor against the rest of the nation, to which they do not wish to submit. Well, they have shared the land. I admit that therefrom results a powerful organization of labor, and that this method of distribution, fixed and durable, is advantageous to production. But how could this division give to each a transferable right of property in a thing to which all had an inalienable right of possession. In terms of jurisprudence, this metamorphosis from possessor to proprietor is legally impossible. It implies in the jurisdiction of the courts the union of possessor and petitor, and the mutual concessions of those who share the land are nothing less than traffic in natural rights. The original cultivators of the land, who were also the original makers of the law, were not as learned as our legislators, I admit, and had they been, they could not have done worse. They did not foresee the consequences of the transformation of the right of private possession into the right of absolute property. But why have not those who in later times have established the distinction between jus in re and jus ad rem, applied it to the principle of property itself. Let me call the attention of the writers on jurisprudence to their own maxims. The right of property, provided it can have a cause, can have but one. Dominium non potest nisi ex una causa contendere. I can possess by several titles. I can become proprietor by only one. Non ut ex pluribus causis idem nobis deberi potest ita ex pluribus causis idem potest nostrum esse. The field which I have cleared, which I cultivate, on which I have built my house, which supports myself, my family, and my livestock, I can possess. First, as the original occupant, second, as a laborer, third, by virtue of the social contract which assigns it to me as my share. But none of these titles confer upon me the right of property, for if I attempt to base it upon occupancy, society can reply, I am the original occupant. If I appeal to my labor, it will say, it is only on that condition that you possess. If I speak of agreements, 
it will respond these agreements establish only your right of use such however are the only titles which proprietors advance they never have been able to discover any others indeed every right it is pothier who says it supposes a producing cause in the person who enjoys it but in man who lives and dies in this son of earth who passes away like a shadow there exists with respect to external things only titles of possession not one title of property why then has society recognized a right injurious to itself where there is no producing cause why in according possession has it also conceded property why has the law sanctioned this abuse of power the german ancillon replies thus some philosophers pretend that man in employing his forces upon a natural object say a field or a tree acquires a right only to the improvements which he makes to the form which he gives to the object not to the object itself useless distinction if the form could be separated from the object perhaps there would be room for question but as this is almost always impossible the application of man's strength to the different parts of the visible world is the foundation of the right of property the primary origin of riches vain pretext if the form cannot be separated from the object nor property from possession possession must be shared in any case society reserves the right to fix the conditions of property let us suppose that an appropriated farm yields a gross income of ten thousand francs and as very seldom happens that this farm cannot be divided let us suppose farther that by economical calculation the annual expenses of a family are three thousand francs the possessor of this farm should be obliged to guard his reputation as a good father of a family by paying to society ten thousand francs less the total costs of cultivation and the three thousand francs required for the maintenance of his family this payment is not rent it is an indemnity what sort of justice is it then which makes such laws as this whereas since labor so changes the form of a thing that the form and substance cannot be separated without destroying the thing itself either society must be disinherited or the laborer must lose the fruit of his labor and whereas in every other case property in raw material would give a title to added improvements minus their costs and whereas in this instance property and improvements ought to give a title to the principal therefore the right of appropriation by labor shall never be admitted against individuals but only against society in such a way do legislators always reason in regard to property the law is intended to protect men's mutual rights that is the rights of each against each and each against all and as if a proportion could exist with less than four terms 
the lawmakers always disregard the latter. As long as man is opposed to man, property offsets property, and the two forces balance each other. As soon as man is isolated, that is, opposed to the society which he himself represents, jurisprudence is at fault. Themis has lost one scale of her balance. Listen to the professor of Rennes, the learned Tolier. How could this claim, made valid by occupation, become stable and permanent property, which might continue to stand and which might be reclaimed after the first occupant had relinquished possession? Agriculture was a natural consequence of the multiplication of the human race, and agriculture in its turn favors population and necessitates the establishment of permanent property. For who would take the trouble to plow and sow if he were not certain that he would reap? To satisfy the husbandman, it was sufficient to guarantee him possession of his crop, admit even that he should have been protected in his right of occupation of land as long as he remained its cultivator. That was all that he had a right to expect. That was all that the advance of civilization demanded. But property, property, the right of eschet over lands which one neither occupies nor cultivates, who had the authority to grant it? Who pretended to have it? Agriculture alone was not sufficient to establish permanent property. Positive laws were needed, and magistrates to execute them. In a word, the civil state was needed. The multiplication of the human race had rendered agriculture necessary. The need of securing to the cultivator the fruit of his labor made permanent property necessary, and also laws for its protection. So we are indebted to property for the creation of the civil state. Yes, of our civil state, as you have made it, a state which at first was despotism, then monarchy, then aristocracy, today democracy, and always tyranny. Without the ties of property, it never would have been possible to subordinate men to the wholesome yoke of the law, and without permanent property, the earth would have remained a vast forest. Let us admit, then, with the most careful writers that if transient property or the right of preference resulting from occupation existed prior to the establishment of civil society, permanent property as we know it today is the work of civil law. It is the civil law which holds that when once acquired property can be lost only by the action of the proprietor and that it exists even after the proprietor had relinquished possession of the thing and it has fallen into the hands of a third party. Thus property and possession, which originally were confounded, became through the civil law two distinct and independent things, two things which, in the language of the law, have nothing whatever in common. In this we see what a wonderful change has been effected in property, and to what an extent nature has been altered by the civil laws. Thus the law in establishing property has not been an expression of a psychological fact the development of a natural law the application of a moral principle it has literally created 
a right outside of its own province. It has realized an abstraction, a metaphor, a fiction, that without deigning to look at the consequences, without considering the disadvantages, without inquiring whether it was right or wrong. It has sanctioned selfishness. It has endorsed monstrous pretensions. It has received with favor impious vows, as if it were able to fill up a bottomless pit and to satiate hell. Blind law, the law of the ignorant man, a law which is not a law, the voice of discord, deceit, and blood. This it is which, continually revived, reinstated, rejuvenated, restored, reinforced, as the palladium of society, has troubled the consciences of the people, has obscured the minds of the masters, and has induced all the catastrophes which have befallen nations. This it is which Christianity has condemned, but which its ignorant ministers defy, who have as little desire to study nature and man as ability to read their scriptures. But indeed, what guide did the law follow in creating the domain of property? What principle directed it? What was its standard? Would you believe it? It was equality. Agriculture was the foundation of territorial possession and the original cause of property. It was of no use to secure the farmer the fruit of his labor unless the means of production were at the same time secured to him to fortify the weak against the invasion of the strong, to suppress spoliation and fraud. The necessity was felt of establishing between possessors permanent lines of division, insuperable obstacles. Every year we saw the people multiply and the cupidity of the husbandman increase. It was thought best to put a bridle on ambition by setting boundaries which ambition would in vain attempt to overstep. Thus the soil came to be appropriated through need of the equality which is essential to public security and peaceable possession. Undoubtedly, the division was never geographically equal. A multitude of rights, some founded in nature, but wrongly interpreted and still more wrongly applied, inheritance, gift, and exchange, others, like the privileges of birth and position, the illegitimate creations of ignorance and brute force, all operated to prevent absolute equality. But, nevertheless, the principle remained the same. Equality had sanctioned possession. Equality sanctioned property. The husbandman needed each year a field to sow. Now what more convenient and simple arrangement for the barbarians? instead of indulging in annual quarrels and fights, instead of continually moving their houses, furniture, and families from spot to spot, than to assign to each individual a fixed and inalienable estate. It was not right that the soldier on returning from an expedition should find himself dispossessed on account of the services which he had just rendered to his country. His estate ought to be restored to him. It became, therefore, customary to retain property by intent alone, nudo animo, 
it could be sacrificed only with the consent and by the action of the proprietor. It was necessary that the equality in the division should be kept up from one generation to another, without a new distribution of the land upon the death of each family. It appeared, therefore, natural and just that children and parents, according to the degree of relationship which they bore to the deceased, should be the heirs of their ancestors. Thence came, in the first place, the feudal and patriarchal custom of recognizing only one heir. Then, by a quite contrary application of the principle of equality, the admission of all the children to a share in their father's estate, and very recently also among us, the definitive abolition of the right of primogeniture. But what is there in common between these rude outlines of instinctive organization and the true social science? How could these men, who never had the faintest idea of statistics, valuation, or political economy, furnish us with principles of legislation? The law, says a modern writer on jurisprudence, is the expression of a social want, the declaration of a fact. The legislator does not make it, he declares it. This definition is not exact. The law is a method by which social wants must be satisfied. The people do not vote it. The legislator does not express it. The savant discovers and formulates it. But in fact, the law, according to Comte, who has devoted half a volume to its definition, was in the beginning only the expression of a want, and the indication of the means of supplying it, and up to this time it has been nothing else. The legists, with mechanical fidelity, full of obstinacy, enemies of philosophy buried in literalities, have always mistaken for the last word of science that which only the inconsiderate aspiration of men who, to be sure, were well-meaning but wanting in foresight. They did not foresee, these old founders of the domain of property, that the perpetual and absolute right to retain one's estate, a right which seemed to them equitable because it was common, involves the right to transfer, sell, give, gain, and lose it, that it tends, consequently, to nothing less than the destruction of that equality to which they established it to maintain. Though they should have foreseen it, they disregarded it. The present want occupied their whole attention, and, as ordinarily happens in such cases, the disadvantages were at first scarcely perceptible, and they passed unnoticed. They did not foresee, these ingenious legislators, that if property is retainable by intent alone, nudo animo, it carries with it the right to let, to lease, to loan, at interest, to profit by exchange, to settle annuities, and to levy a tax on a field which intent reserves, while the body is busy elsewhere. They did not foresee, these fathers of our jurisprudence, that, if the right of inheritance is anything other than nature's method of preserving equality of wealth, families will soon become victims of the most disastrous exclusions, and society, 
pierced to the heart by one of the most sacred principles, will come to its death through opulence and misery. Under whatever form of government we live, it can always be said that le mort sacit les vifs, that is, that inheritance and succession will last forever, whoever may be the recognized heir. But the St. Simonians wish their heir to be designated by the magistrate. Others wish him to be chosen by the deceased, or assumed by the law to be so chosen. The essential point is that nature's wish to be satisfied, so far as the law of equity allows. Today, the real controller of inheritance is chance or caprice. Now, in matters of legislation, chance and caprice cannot be accepted as guides. It is for the purpose of avoiding the manifold disturbances which follow in the wake of chance that nature, after having created us equal, suggests to us the principle of heredity, which serves as a voice by which society asks us to choose from among all our brothers him whom we judge best fitted to complete our unfinished work. They did not foresee, but why need I go farther? The consequences are plain enough, and this is not the time to criticize the whole code. The history of property among the ancient nations is, then, simply a matter of research and curiosity. It is a rule of jurisprudence that the fact does not substantiate the right. Now, property is no exception to this rule. Then the universal recognition of the right of property does not legitimate the right of property. Man is mistaken as to the constitution of society, the nature of right, and the application of justice, just as he was mistaken regarding the cause of meteors and the movement of the heavenly bodies. His old opinions cannot be taken for articles of faith. Of what consequence is it to us that the Indian race was divided into four classes, that on the banks of the Nile and the Ganges, blood and position formerly determined the distribution of the land, that the Greeks and Romans placed property under the protection of the gods, that they accompanied with religious ceremonies the work of partitioning the land and appraising their goods. The variety of the forms of privilege does not sanction injustice. The faith of Jupiter, the proprietor, proves no more against the equality of citizens than do the mysteries of Venus, the wanton, against conjugal chastity. The authority of the human race is of no effect as evidence in favor of the right of property, because this right, resting of necessity upon equality, contradicts its principle. The decision of the religions which have sanctioned it is of no effect, because in all ages the priest has submitted to the prince, and the gods have always spoken to the politicians desired. The social advantages attributed to a property cannot be cited in its behalf, because they all spring from the principle of equality of possession. What means, then, this dithram on property? 
The right of property is the most important of human institutions. Yes, as monarchy is most glorious, the original cause of man's prosperity upon earth, because justice was supposed to be its principle. Property became the legitimate end of his ambition, the hope of his existence, the shelter of his family, in a word, the cornerstone of the domestic dwelling, of communities and of the political state. Possession alone produced all that. Eternal principle. Property is eternal, like every negation, of all social and civil institutions. For that reason, every institution and every law based on property will perish. It is a boon as precious as liberty for the rich proprietor. In fact, the cause of the cultivation of the habitable earth. If the cultivator ceased to be a tenant, would the land be worse cared for? The guarantee and the morality of labor. Under the regime of property, labor is not a condition, but a privilege. The application of justice. What is justice without equality of fortunes? A balance with false weights. All morality. A famished stomach knows no morality. All public order. Certainly, the preservation of property rests on the right of property. Cornerstone of all which is, stumbling block of all which ought to be, such is property. To sum up and conclude, not only does occupation lead to equality, it prevents property. For since every man, from the fact of his existence, has the right of occupation, and in order to live, must have material for cultivation on which he may labor, and since, on the other hand, the number of occupants varies continually with the births and deaths. It follows that the quantity of material which each laborer may claim varies with the number of occupants. Consequently, that occupation is always subordinate to population. Finally, that, inasmuch as possession in right can never remain fixed, it is impossible, in fact, that it can ever become property. Every occupant is, then, necessarily a possessor, or usufructuary, a function which excludes proprietorship. Now, this is the right of the usufructuary. He is responsible for the thing entrusted to him. He must use it in conformity with general utility, with a view to its preservation and development. He has no power to transform it, to diminish it, or to change its nature. He cannot so divide the usufruct that another shall perform the labor while he receives the product. In a word, the usufructuary is under the supervision of society, submitted to the condition of labor and the law of equality. Thus is annihilated the Roman definition of property the right of use and abuse.
an immorality born of violence, the most monstrous pretension that the civil laws ever sanctioned. Man receives his usufruct from the hands of society, which alone is the permanent possessor. The individual passes away, society is deathless. What a profound disgust fills my soul while discussing such simple truths. Do we doubt these things today? Will it be necessary to again take arms for their triumph? And can force, in default of reason, alone introduce them into our laws? All have an equivalent right of occupancy. The amount occupied being measured, not by the will, but by the variable conditions of space and number, property cannot exist. This no code has ever expressed. This no constitution can admit. These are axioms which the civil law and the law of nations deny. But I hear the exclamations of the partisans of another system. Labor, labor, that is the basis of property. Reader, do not be deceived. This new basis of property is worse than the first and I shall soon have to ask your pardon for having demonstrated things clearer and refuted pretensions more unjust than any which we have yet considered. End of chapter 2